and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 186, All Good Things Must Come to an End. Last time, on January 7, 1942, Lieutenant Harry Kane, his crew, and his A-29 Hudson bomber cracked the submarine U-701 wide open, sending its air and most of its crew to the surface. Believe it or not, that was the easy part for the Americans. The hard part was getting anyone from headquarters to hear their report, for the survivors were being pushed to the northeast by the currents further from land. Contact was finally made in the late afternoon. Of course, by now, the air crew could not find the survivors after leaving to find a ship that would hopefully pick up the Germans. But that did not pan out. So when Harry's Hudson had to leave due to fuel, the Germans were gone from the face of the earth. As for that last part, this was witnessed by Captain Deegan and his survivors. They saw the American plane fly away and then return, circling, searching for them. But Deegan and his men stayed close, and the waves hid them well enough. Soon the plane departed, and Deegan told his men that help would soon come. They weren't the only German sub in these waters. But then came a breakdown in discipline, not uncommon in times like this. Deegan tried to yell for his men to stay together, to watch out for each other, but that's when two of his men declared they were swimming for shore, that they knew they could make it. Those men disappeared, never to be seen again. After the sun went down, another young crewman, Ertzweiler, who kept telling everyone he did not know how to swim, disappeared beneath the waves around 9 p.m. To this, Digging kept trying to buck up his men not to give up. His latest plea was for them to just hold on until sunlight, then something would happen. This trick worked, and Deegan did not lose any more men during the night. However, the next day, some of the men accidentally drank seawater, got sick, and then delirious, calling out, asking for a beer or for something that brought them comfort. Not that Deegan could make out what they were saying. Then, a U.S. Coast Guard vessel passed them by, about a mile away, but did not spot the suffering men, who were wildly waving their arms. And it was this disastrous episode that broke the strength of many of Deegan's men. That second day, six men let go of whatever objects they were holding onto and slipped beneath the waves. Around midnight, two more vanished. Before dawn, another three had gone under. When the sun rose on that third morning, there were only four men left. Incredibly, one of them found a coconut and a lemon floating in the water. Soon the men enjoyed a bit of milk and then meat, courtesy of the coconut, and then took turns sucking juice from the lemon. And their luck was about to get better. On July 9th, three days in the water, at 1.42 p.m., a Navy blimp saw four men floating in the water and reported it back to base. Next, they signaled, we dropped life raft, food, water, blankets, and first aid equipment. Sadly, at least five bodies were floating nearby, and they were also spotted. But to the horror of the blip crew, those five bodies started disappearing as large sharks were discovered nearby. The crew of the K-8 airship blimp noticed that only three men had the strength to climb into the raft that they threw down. 
The fourth, Deegan, the captain, had to be helped aboard. This K-class blimp was another part of America's anti-submarine warfare operations operating in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. During the war, 134 of these blimps would be built by the Goodyear Aircraft Company of Akron, Ohio. Surprisingly, given the technology by then, the blimp was not retired by the military until 1959. So, at 4.05 p.m. July 9th, after 49 hours in the water, the crew of a U.S. Coast Guard amphibious biplane pulled Deegan and the three others with him into their plane. Also, the Coast Guard crew had found and previously picked up three other Germans. Now, they were all on their way to Norfolk Naval Operations Base and would soon be in a nearby hospital. That was the standard procedure, of course, given the survivor's condition. Then came the non-standard part. Lying in hospital, still recovering from exposure, dehydration, and the like, Deegan and another crewmate were visited by intelligence officers who may have been a little too eager to get access to the POWs. According to Naval Intelligence Records, two men from the 5th Naval District came in and acknowledged Deegan's weakened state. Next, they injected him with something. Deegan thought it was morphine to help keep the pain at bay, but after a few minutes of the needle going in, the two men started yelling at Deegan, getting close to his face, yelling questions like, where exactly did you depart from in France? How many torpedoes did your sub carry? Whether for good or ill, Deegan was too out of it to answer these questions, even if he wanted to. Yet one of Deegan's men, Kunert, definitely won the Twilight Zone Experience Prize. During the first night, a large menacing man came into his room and ordered everyone else out. After they left, this man put his hand on his pistol that was on his hip and started asking the youth questions about his sub. The German kept quiet, more intrigued than scared by this John Wayne impersonator. The next day, an older man in a suit came into Kurnert's room. He was calm and seemed friendly. Getting closer to the POW, the older man started telling Kunert, Now, just relax. You are relaxed. You will be asleep. It took Kunert a few seconds to realize this man was trying to hypnotize him. So the German played along, pretending to be drowsy. Next, the man in the dark suit lifted Kunert's arm and then let it go. Kunert, hoping he was getting this right, let his arm fall as if he had no control over it. This seemed to satisfy the man, who then started asking questions. Kunert did the best he could with his answers, but purposefully never gave away any information that he deemed harmful to Germany's war effort. Either the man realized Kunert was playing with him, or because he was not getting any information worth his time, the older man, at some point, simply turned and walked out of the room. Next, more established-looking men came in. The Germans guessed that these were the real authorities, and they would have been right. These men were from the Special Intelligence Section of the Office of Naval Intelligence, which begs the question, who were the other guys? Right away, these naval officers told the Germans that the intimidation and injections were over. But now these American authorities had two problems to figure out. 
One, getting information from these Germans, but limited in their means by the Third Geneva Convention. And two, figuring out who the earlier questions were and why they were so gung-ho, if you will, about questioning these men. Though the issue of inhumane treatment was buried under the rug, but only after many internal memos were sent around, forbidding this kind of treatment ever again. The second question seemed to be answered by the fact that only a week ago, there had been the arrests from the Operation Pastorius, so everybody was hypersensitive. Thus, the would-be hypnotist and his friend, the needle injector, were trying to establish if U-701 had helped bring the foreign would-be saboteurs across the Atlantic. If so, the Germans' greatest worry would not be needles, but bullets from an executioner's gun. Obviously, Deegan understood enough of this as to not admit to bringing spies to the U.S., but he also left out mining the waters next to the major port cities. Again, the results could have been death. Not that it mattered, as the naval authorities said they could easily charge Deegan and his with the crime of transporting foreign spies, and they could make it stick. And it was probably this threat, more than the truth serum they had been injected with, that got the Germans to start talking. Deegan, though smart enough to leave out spies and mines, started opening up to the questions coming at him. Clearly, and this would be noted, Deegan loved to talk, to show off, but also thought he was more clever than everyone else in the room, whether on the high seas or not. So as the German thought he was playing cat and mouse with the Americans, they were gathering up useful information. Deegan shared where his base in France was and that it was still operational. Clearly, the British had not bombed it as thoroughly as they had thought. That would have to be corrected. Next, Deegan admitted to meeting Captain Hardigan of Sub U-123 after his second successful outing to America. But, Deegan told the Americans, many sub-commanders did not think much of Hardigan. That could have been jealousy. On July 11th, a Saturday, Deegan was led into a room where five U.S. Army officers were waiting. Deegan was introduced to Harry Kane, the pilot of the A-29 Hudson, who sank his sub. Deegan jumped to attention to salute the victorious American. Congratulations, good attack, the German said. Kane's only response was that he was sorry that the Hudson could not land on the water to rescue the rest of Deegan's men. The next day, Deegan and his were taken to a detention center at Fort Devens, near Boston, Massachusetts. The Germans would quickly settle in and decide this was not a bad place to set out the war. Deegan would go on to say, We shall now pass the days of our detention as POWs. We are being correctly handled and receive good treatment. There is plenty of good food to eat. However, that was not his tone when he finally wrote to Admiral Donitz, saying, My dear Admiral, much to my regret, it is not accorded to me to report back to my commander in the usual manner. A cruel fate, regrettably aroused by the personal fault and negligence of one of my watch officers, has wrestled the weapon out of my hand. I assume that the few names of the survivors have been received by you through official Red Cross report. It is extraordinarily galling for us here to be POWs while our comrades out there are continuing 
to do their duty. Soon Deegan and his men were removed from Fort Devens and taken to Fort Hunt, newly completed in northern Virginia. Days later, Captain Rathk and his crew from U-352 joined them, and together they were all questioned by a unit only known as MISY. MISY was under the War Department's Military Intelligence Service. Its mission was to bring selected German POWs from the European Theater of Operations to the United States for the purpose of gathering vital intelligence in support of the Allied war effort. And here was a prime chance to get some information, anything to help with the war off America's coast. After the hypnotizing and veiled threats had been tried, MISY would take another track, one based on the human condition and not the latest theory of someone who has spent too much time away from people. Simply, crewmen of the two different subs were put together in the same room and left alone. Human nature did the rest. Being curious about the other's experience with the Americans, that is, the combat and becoming a POW, the men threw caution to the wind and swapped stories. This way, military intelligence got more information than from any questioning session. By mid-September, the American authorities believed they had extrapolated all useful information from these men. Hence, they were sent back to their new homes. The crew of U-352 went back to Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and U-701 went back to Fort Devens in Northern Virginia, both for the rest of the war. Meanwhile, back on July 19, 1942, Admiral Donitz logged an entry that had a different tone than his earlier entries. Quote, Situation reports from boats in the American area show the following. In the sea area off Hatteras, successes have dropped considerably. This is due to a drop in the traffic, he meant the formation of convoys, and increased defensive measures. Of the boats stationed there in the recent period, only two, U-754 and U-701, have had successes. On the other hand, U-701 and U-215 have apparently been lost, and U-402 and U-576 damaged badly by depth charges or bombs. This state of things is not justified by the amount of success achieved. The two remaining boats, U-754 and U-458, will therefore be removed. In the last seven months, the German subs had sunk 93 merchant ships, or U.S. Navy vessels, off North Carolina's coast. Along with them were the deaths of 1,710 people. And if you zoomed out, the numbers were even worse. Some 5,000 merchant mariners, or their passengers, had been killed, and 397 vessels sunk in the first six months of the war in the Atlantic. Just days before Donitz made this entry, he knew that U-576 had been damaged, as noted, but the next day, it was lost forever. Probably not on Donitz's orders, or perhaps the crew was hoping to take out one last ship before she was lost. On July 15th, U-576 sent out a full spread of torpedoes against a convoy currently off the North Carolina coast. 
The day before, she had been engaged in a mighty battle with two Vought OS-2U Kingfisher inshore patrol planes. The U.S. Navy pilots stayed on the sub, who tried to dodge and weave to generate enough time to submerge. By the time it was all over, the sub was damaged, and its prospects of returning home were in doubt. Thus it seemed the captain and crew would test the defensive capacity of the convoy system, the very thing the Allies were relying on to get ahead in this war. Heading south, just 35 miles off Cape Hatteras ashore, a convoy was come upon by U-576. Seeing this as probably their last opportunity, four torpedoes were sent out. As this audacious move was a surprise, one ship was sunk, the Nicaraguan-flagged freighter SS Bluefields. Another two were damaged. But then came the reaction to the sub's action. The U.S. Navy armed guard on the freighter SS Unicoi manned the deck gun and started firing on the submerging enemy vessel. Clearly, their shooting was decent, as U-576 never again sent a signal or emerged from the depths below. Indeed, as both lost vessels, the Bluefields and U-576, were found in 2014, the divers discovered that they were only 240 yards apart. Hence, the sub fired and was quickly fired upon in return. As the Germans would find out, a war on the Eastern Front that used attrition was not a recipe for success, much like the Japanese fighting against the Chinese on the Asian mainland. And now here was Donitz being shown that losing a sub to sink a part of a convoy was not the way to go. But clearly he had figured this out as his remaining subs were ordered out of the area. As for the locals of the North Carolina coast and the servicemen who were sent there, it would take a while for them to register the change, that is, the lack of dead bodies washing up upon shore, or the clouds of black smoke hanging in the air from another doomed ship. One reason for the delay in not recognizing the change was simply the pace of life during this war. More facilities were being built up, but the great irony would be that by the time they were done in and around North Carolina, the Germans were no longer just off their waters. But such is the way of war. Another cause of the Americans staying hyper-focused and expecting further loss of life and damage to their property was the recently reported German spies who were caught from Operation Pastorius. Yet, by the late summer of 1942, if the people of Cape Hatteras wanted to learn of the war, they could no longer look out of their windows or stand on their beaches and look to the east. But, like most other Americans, they had to listen to their radio and wait for reports from the likes of Edward R. Murrow and Gabriel Heater. Unlike Edward R. Murrow, the name Gabriel Heater has faded through the years. But on the one-year anniversary of Pearl Harbor, Heater delivered a special broadcast. Because of the broadcast which follows, the program The Better Half will not be heard tonight. It will be presented over most of these stations next Monday evening at 9.30 Eastern War Time. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gabriel Heater inviting you on a journey prepared especially for you by WOR's War Services Division and the Mutual Network. 
One year after Pearl Harbor has brought vast and overwhelming change for millions of American homes. Millions of men have gone into uniform and thousands of women are in uniform. More than half a million women are holding down war jobs. Vast, overwhelming change rolls across America. We've had casualties and we've avenged many. We've been taken by surprise and we've surprised our enemies. We've been hit and we've struck back. We're a long way from Berlin and Tokyo, but all men realize we are on our way. Meanwhile, everything at home has felt war's hit. Gone are the days when you roll up to a garage and say, fill her up. We're using ration books. Gasoline, coffee, sugar, and rubber are priceless. Homes in which meat every day was taken for granted now wonder what will it be like when meat is rationed. Or keeping rooms at wartime temperatures. We're buying bonds and paying higher taxes and millions who never before filled out an income tax blank will be doing it now. Wartime controls move in on salaries, wages, income, on travel and materials and supplies. And most people realize we'll get even more controls and heavier rationing next year. One year after Pearl Harbor is a good day to look in on a changed America and see how well we take it. Find out how other parts of our daily living have changed. In the work we do, in songs we sing, and music we dance to. For war is more than building ships, planes, tanks, and guns. It's more than buying bonds, it's more than giving up. War is going on and accepting it all. For years, many of us watched war roll across Europe, and much of it was almost unreal. People gathering scrap, women giving up housework for building planes. People accepting substitutes. Now it's all come here to us. And you and I wonder how are Mr. and Mrs. John Doe Americans responding to it all. Part of our journey tonight is to find out. We're going to crowded places like Times Square. We're going to a quiet village street. We're going out into a cross-section of America to let you see what one year of war has meant for us all.